Uh, well, friends, good morning from me, and uh, let me add my welcome to Foxes. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for coming online. Uh, our preference by far would be to be with you in person. Uh, that, after all, is really the essence of church, our gathering together in fellowship in the name of Christ, to hear God's word and to come before him in prayer and to build each other up. But we know that's not possible in the current lockdown. And uh, we're locked down, but God's word isn't locked down. And so here we are this morning, we're gathered together and we've got this Psalm 101 and we are to be reminded of all God has done for us through his son Jesus to enable our salvation and to open up the doors to eternal life. I'm so thankful for all the members of our different congregations who have already been involved in the service. Um, but it's great to have you with us and we've got this psalm. This wasn't part of our original plan for this series, uh, but for various reasons we pushed uh, John's Gospel back a week. We're starting that next week. And uh, we, we thought, why not just keep going with one more psalm? Although, uh, perhaps as Jazzy was reading for us, you noticed how different this psalm is to all of the other ones that we've been listening to. Um, I hope this will be helpful. The way that I'd like us to tackle it together this morning is we're going to talk through what I think are three big challenges in reading Psalm 101. And uh, then we're going to work together to try and solve those challenges. And we'll finish up by thinking about the psalm and Jesus and us. So first of all, three big challenges with Psalm 101. And the first is verses 2 to 8. Um, now, given the psalm's only eight verses long, I know that might not sound like a very positive start. But um, what I really mean is verses 2 to 8 in light of verse 1. Uh, did you notice this as we read it? before. Um, I love that activity Fox said us before. How would you finish a sentence that begins with the words, I will sing of God's dot, dot, dot. And we had great suggestions before. It was fascinating to hear what people want to sing about. Here's an even bigger challenge there. How would you finish a psalm that begins with the words, I will sing of your love and justice to you, Lord, I will sing praise. Uh, this first verse of Psalm 101. If that was all we had in our Bible reading, how would we expect the rest of this psalm to go? What would we think it would talk about? Well, uh, surely we'd expect it to talk about God's love and God's justice. And surely we'd expect it to kind of have all these outbursts of joyful praise to God. Um, the kind of thing we find a couple of stops down the line in, in Psalm 103, for example. And yet that's not what happens in this psalm, is it? Instead, in verses 2 to 8, the psalm is dominated by the author of the psalm writing basically about himself. I will do this. I will do that. I will not do this. I hate that. I will have nothing to do with this. I will not tolerate that. Now, on the surface of it, this psalm is much more about the author of the psalm than it is about God. In fact, references to him outnumber references to God by 20 to 3. Now, this is not the kind of thing we normally expect from any psalm, I think, let alone one that begins with the words, I will sing of your love and justice to you, Lord, I will sing praise. Uh, it's very perplexing, isn't it? So that's the first challenge, verses 2 to 8 as a unit. The, the second challenge of this psalm is just verse 2 on its own. Uh, did you notice this as we read it before? 
I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. Now, if we're familiar with the Psalms, we'll know that very often they contain statements like this, where the author boldly kind of talks about his own innocence before God, his own blamelessness. And I think most of us feel very awkward about statements like this in the Psalms, and we really hesitate to put them on our own lips. Rightly, I think, because we are only too aware of our naturally sinful hearts. And at times, of our shameful behaviour. And so we just can't ever really imagine speaking to God about our blameless life and about our blameless heart. And yet here is the author of this psalm and he appears to do just that. It's very perplexing, isn't it? How do we understand it? So verses 2 to 8 are a challenge. Verse 2 on its own is a challenge. The third challenge in this psalm, I think, is verses 3 to 8. Um, did you notice this as we read it through earlier? Because verse 2 is very much about the speaker himself and his own intention to pursue the godly life. And probably all of us can respect a person who wants to stand up and say, here's how I am going to live. Uh, we may not uh, agree with all of their decisions, but we respect them for making the call. But in verses 3 to 8, the speaker completely shifts his focus of attention away from himself and onto others. And, and yes, in verse 6, it, it's all expressed pretty positively. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. But all of the other verses in this section, verses 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, these ones are almost entirely negative. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will not have any part of it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbour in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. Verse 7, no one who practises deceit, no one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer. It's very black and white, isn't it? And not that comfortable for us. It, it really goes against the spirit of our age. This readiness, almost enthusiasm it seems, to pass judgment on just about everyone. Deciding who gets approval and who gets excluded and who gets welcomed and who gets cut off and destroyed. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I read about an Anglican church in country New South Wales, uh, which a, a couple of members have recently left. Uh, they had been in leadership positions, but because they would not follow the minister's call for them to repent from a long-standing, ongoing matter of public sin, uh, which is not only contrary to the clear teaching of the Bible, but also to the code of conduct that governs all clergy and lay workers in the, the Anglican Church of Australia, they decided to leave. 
And the way the story was reported, the majority of the congregation supported the departing members over the minister. And one parishioner was even quoted as saying, as you read on through the Bible, God is all about love, about loving each other and forgiving each other. And that was their explanation. Now, I'm sure there are all sorts of details about that circumstance that I don't know, and so I've deliberately kept it pretty vague so that we don't start to speculate. But the point I'm simply trying to make is this. I think that kind of situation feels much more the, the spirit of our age, doesn't it? And we all face enormous pressure to conform to it. And the one thing we mustn't do is pass judgment on people. Ethical absolutes are out. They're a thing of the bigoted past. Morality is just a matter of personal choice. And no one can say that those are wrong. Even God, we are told, is not interested in judgment. Maybe he was once, but not anymore. And for many of us, if we are Christians, given that this is the cultural air that we breathe all the time, I think we find it exceedingly difficult when we open our Bibles and we come to a psalm like this and it just feels like there is this ugly spirit of judgment and condemnation. And we want to hold to the fact that it's the Word of God, but it, it just seems to sing such a completely different tune to the one that we hear the rest of the time, and maybe even the one that we want it to sing. And perhaps if we are not Christians, and friends, if you're with us online this morning and that's you, I want to say a particular welcome it is so good to have you with us. We hope you'll be willing to join us again. Maybe for you, though, there's lots about Jesus you find compelling and, and actually very attractive. But it's passages like this one that make you want to hold back from committing. Because if being a Christian means to be someone like this, then you're not sure that it's really for you. I mean, do you see the challenge? And so verses 2 to 8 are a challenge. Verse 2 is a challenge. Verses 3 to 8 is a challenge. And verse 1 is solid. I like verse 1. Verse 1 is a great verse. But how, how does it all hold together? How do we resolve these things so that the psalm actually makes sense? And not just makes sense, but helps us and encourages us and spurs us on to keep loving God and trusting Jesus and being eager to do what is good. How does the psalm help us with all of that? Well, let me draw attention to four things very briefly that I hope will clear the way a little bit and then we'll finish by thinking about the psalm and Jesus and us. So uh, four things that I hope will help. First of all, we need to remember who the speaker of this psalm is and the good thing about that is we're told in the title, Psalm 101 of David, a psalm. So that's the first thing. This is a psalm of David. David is the speaker. Second, because it's a psalm of David and David is the speaker, therefore this is a psalm that is really about the kingly leadership of God's people. See, this psalm isn't sung by just any old Joe Israelite. That's not who David was. No, David was the king of Israel, her greatest king, in fact, really her, her kind of prototype king. Uh, God's correction 
to all of the worldly concerns and priorities that stood behind the people's choice of their first king, Saul. David was a man after God's own heart, and, and God's own heart was after David. That's why God made him those spectacular promises recorded in 2 Samuel 7, that when David's days were done and he lay down with his fathers, God would raise up his offspring after him and God would establish his kingdom, the, the son of David's kingdom. And God would build a house for him and, and he would build a house for God's name and, and God would be to him as a father. And so the son of David would also be called the son of God as he ruled over God's people. So this is a, a psalm of David. David is the speaker. This psalm is about the kingly leadership of God's people. Now verse 8 is probably where we see that, the clearest. For who else apart from the king could speak so plainly of the heavy responsibility he bore to rid the land of all the wicked and to cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord? And we see it as well in verses 6 to 7 as he describes his choice of those who will be allowed to dwell in his house and to stand in his presence and to minister to him because the king has to be so careful, so judicious, so wise in his choice of advisors to stand at his side in the administration of justice. So do you see how it works? This psalm could not be said by just any old Israelite. This is a king's psalm it, it's a psalm about the kingly leadership of god's people third it, it's a psalm that is captive to the king's love for god remember that first verse of the psalm again i will sing of your love and justice these two things that we heard about in our, our church family spot, they go together perfectly. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. Now, here is the prompt for everything else this psalm says, uh, just as it should always be the prompt for all of the praise that God's people give to him in every time and place. The proper praise of God never starts with our love for God, but with God's love for us the initiative is always his the first step is always from him to us not the other way around the concern for the downtrodden and the oppressed the loving kindness to those that he has committed himself to that is always in God's heart first now the people of Israel knew these truths about God after all, they were the nation God had rescued from, from all that slavery, that long oppression in Egypt under Pharaoh. They were the nation that God had been so faithful to promises made centuries before. So the people of Israel knew these promises about God. David himself also knew these truths about God so deeply and so personally his whole life was a testimony to these things about God his love and his justice not just the way God had brought him to the throne but but also the way that God had delivered him from the hand of Saul and from the hand of all his enemies even great big Goliath 
So, of course, David was a man who wanted to sing of God's love and justice. And then we hear verse 2, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? Uh, On the basis of this verse, uh, some commentaries suggest that this must be a psalm of lament. But there's nothing really else in this psalm that suggests such a thing. And surely times of lament are not the only times that God's people can long for God's presence. Uh, Far better than to see in this verse a revelation of what's in David's heart. The kind of sentiment, perhaps, that we express whenever we sing hymns like, Be Thou My Vision. David's heart and mind are filled with thoughts of God. Not just godly affections, but God would affections. He longs for God to be with him. He longs for God to come close. This is a psalm that is captive to the king's deep love for God. Therefore, finally, it is a psalm that is captive both to the king's love for what God loves and his hatred of what God hates. He loves what God loves and hates what God hates, first of all, for himself. Uh, which is why in verse 2 he expresses so clearly his intention to lead a blameless life, his resolve to pursue a blameless life. But he also loves what God loves and hates what God hates for the sake of God's people over whom he rules as king. So in verse 6, he loves those who are faithful and whose walk is blameless. He's more than glad to have them come in and be his advisors and counsellors and to minister to him and to be in his presence. But then verses 3 to 5 and verses 7 to 8, not those who are faithless or who do what is evil, not those whose heart is proud and perverse, not those who slander their neighbours and who practise lies not those who commit evil. See, the God whose love and justice are the basis of songs, verse 1, he cannot abide these things among his people. They are just so contrary to his revealed character. They are so diametrically opposed to the way that he has treated his people. These are not the proper clothes for the kingdom of God, and and God hates it when his people live in these ways. And therefore, so does God's king. That's why in the last line of the psalm, there's this reference to cutting off all evildoers from the city of the Lord. What David talks about in this psalm is not just his own personal preferences for how people ought to live, Ultimately, it's about how the people of a holy God are to be holy just as God is holy when they come into his presence. Now, God's king, if he's to be any real use to God or to God's people, he has to be completely in sync with God. He has to share 
God's priorities. He has to reflect God's values. He has to faithfully uphold the concerns that God says are the most important. That's what this psalm is about. And of course, as we read through the Old Testament, and for a time under King David, and then once more under the kingly rule of his son Solomon, for a time we can see just what a great blessing it was for the people of God to have a godly king who was in sync with God, who shared God's priorities and reflected his values and faithfully upheld the things that God said were most important. We can see how good it was for the people to be ruled by godly kings like that. Except, of course, neither of them did it perfectly. Nor any of the kings who followed them. Not until we come to Jesus Christ, born both the Son of David and the Son of God, but the Son of God uniquely, in his own right, not just by virtue of the fact that he was the son of David. From his birth to his death, he was rightly called the king of the Jews. And never has there been a king of God's people more completely in sync with his heavenly father. He himself took the very greatest care to lead a perfectly blameless life life with a perfectly blameless heart he didn't give in to sin even when he was tempted in the wilderness nor again when he was tempted in the garden on the night before he died and he also praised and commended faithfulness wherever he saw it in others like the widow with her two copper coins up at the temple On the flip side, though, he did not tolerate faithless people. He cast the marketeers and the money changers out of the temple courts. He didn't endure those who were proud. He constantly rebuked the self-righteousness of the religious class. He hated sin in every form. In fact, he hated it so much that eventually... He laid down his own life to deal with it once and for all. And he did this so that his people might be holy as they come into God's presence. And so Paul talks in Ephesians about how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. To hear, friends, even much more than King David knew is the perfect love and justice of God about which joyful songs of praise are still being sung by God's people even today. Jesus Christ laying down his life on the cross for us because he both loved what God loved and hated what God hated. 
Friends, how wonderful it must have been for the people of Israel to have a king like David who wrote and sung these words. And he may not have been able to live them out perfectly, but how wonderful to have a king for whom this was his aspiration. His love for God was so clear and his priorities for God's people were so godly. But by a margin that is too big to express with words, the Lord Jesus Christ is for us an even greater king. And if we have come to know the perfect love of God and the perfect justice of God, which is revealed in the gospel message about Jesus Christ, then Psalm 101 calls us to be the kind of people that he will gladly accept and welcome into his presence, who also sing to God songs of praise about his love and justice. The extraordinary things he has done for us in Christ. And who by their knowledge of that, are having their hearts constantly changed. So that we too grow to love the things that God loves. And hate the things that God hates. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this psalm as different as it is from many of the others that we've been looking at. We thank you that you provided for the people of Israel, uh, godly kings like David and Solomon, and for a time uh, they enjoyed the great blessing of having godly kings. But we know that each one of those men was a pointer to your son, our perfect king, your perfect king. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus was so in sync with you in his earthly life and ministry. And his whole life was lived in devotion to you. Loving the things you love and hating the things you hate. To make for himself a church that is holy, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Help us to be such people. Amen.